In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, of course, we have been thinking together this fall a little bit about some of the most beautiful words in all of the Hebrew scriptures from the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah. We call those second or third Isaiah, and as you remember, they tell the story of a devastating experience that happened to those descendants of Abraham. By that time, they had been living in the world of Palestine for some 1,200 years, And, and frankly, at that point, they had become a little entitled, thinking that this land belonged to them, that they had a right to it, that it could never be taken away from them. And then in the middle of the 6th century, you remember a devastating experience. They were conquered by a violent, barbaric army, the Babylonians, under a cruel general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem was taken. 25,000 of the best and brightest were shipped off into exile uh, 60 miles to the, 600 miles to the east. And uh, within the next 10 years, that army returned and actually flattened the city, destroyed the temple entirely. And yet in those 60 years, um, they learned some tremendous things. There is a wonderful phrase in the book of Isaiah that there are treasures in the darkness. By which I mean that there are some things that you learn through difficulty and through adversity that you simply do not learn in times of ease. It is a fact that when you are flat on your back, you see things that you do not see when you are standing up. There are stars in the sky that you see only in the darkness of the night that are not available to you in the light of day. And that's what these 27 chapters of Isaiah point to. And so it has been my intention in this series uh, to point out to every one of us that even when the bottom drops out, that that situation is not beyond the creative reach of God to redeem. Now, one of the many treasures that came to the Hebrew exiles in that darkness was that they got to see firsthand what it was like to live in a culture of idolatry. It turned out that Babylon was a very religious place. There was a, there was a temple on every corner, sort of like Presbyterian churches in Pittsburgh. Um, it was profoundly religious. But in this case, it was a religion that the people themselves had created. And so one of the crucial things that Isaiah holds up to us this morning is that there is an ultimate distinction to be made between faith in the gods that we make for ourselves and faith in the God who made us. You see, in the biblical understanding, there are really only two kinds of being. On the one hand, there is the uncreated, that which has life in itself, Um, that which is the source of life, no beginning and no end, the mystery from which all other life is drawn. There is the uncreated side, and then on the other hand, there is the created side, that which draws its existence from the uncreated. If you stop and think about it, everything but God is on the created side. No one but God is on the uncreated 
side. We said a couple of weeks ago, it is though all creation hangs like a chandelier from this one who wanted to give us life, who wants to share his joy with us. And so idolatry is taking anything on the created side, anything. It could be a material thing. Here in the car capital of the world, it could be a car. Not that that would apply to any of us. It can be an institution, a nation, or a church. It can be a relationship with a spouse or with a child. It could be a, a, a systematic way of thinking like socialism or capitalism or even democracy. It is taking that and putting it in a place that it does not belong. Everyone has something that they regard as their highest, their supreme value around which they organize their decision making. Someone has said, in the functional sense, there are no atheists. And the easiest way I know, as I've said before, the easiest way I know to get in touch with what yours is, is to take a really good look at your appointment book and your checkbook. I was driving along one day, and in front of me was this car that had a bumper sticker with four words on it. It said, let God be God. And my first thought as we rolled up to the red light was, what a bunch of religious goobly gop that is. But then, as we sat at an interminably red light, I thought to myself, wait a minute. The name God can be used in a nominal sense, which actually points to something that is divine, but it can also be used in a functional sense. That is, anything that we ascribe uh, to ourselves as, as our, our, our highest value. So what the bumper sticker was really saying is, let God be not just the highest thing on your priority list, but let God be the one who decides what makes it on your priority list. And the point is that in times of crisis, when the bottom falls out, these idols simply don't have the power to save. The problem is that an idol is just a projection of ourselves that we put up on the screen of existence. It's like futilely trying to make God in our image rather than the other way around. And to be honest, I think a lot of what we call spirituality in our culture today falls in this category. And every one of us at some point finds ourselves in places where we don't have the power to do anything about a given situation. And if we haven't figured out how to make that distinction where we can really place our trust, we are truly hopeless. One of the problems, I think, today is that we tend to think of idolatry as sort of this ancient outdated practice, all of these older generations dancing around golden calves. We're way too sophisticated for that, we think to ourselves. But I want to suggest to you that though it comes in many different forms, idolatry really is insidious. And I'll tell you exactly what form that idolatry takes. It's when we make up our own sense of the divine out of what we want. Psychologists sometimes call this wishful thinking. So years ago, a young woman 
uh, made an appointment to see me. It was during the Christmas holidays, and this was at my former church. I had known her since middle school. She had been through confirmations, kind of like Carol, but it wasn't Carol. Um, and uh, I'd seen her grow up in uh, uh, high school. She went off to college for a couple of years. Hadn't seen her in a while. I was really looking forward to just sitting and catching up with her. This was during the days where I actually worked, during Christmas holidays. And um, she walked in, and I could tell right away, uh, just by her body language, that there was something really serious on her mind. And it didn't take long for her to get to it. She said, I've come to ask you to take my names off the church rolls. I have decided that I am no longer in good conscience uh, a Christian. And so I said to her, you know, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to that conclusion? She said, sure. She said, you know, I grew up in this church. I took over and I believed what my parents taught me and my grandparents that uh, human beings were created by God. And she said, now I've come to realize that it's really the other way around. It is human beings who create God. She said, I've come to believe that faith is just making up what you want to believe. It is just spoofing on a grand scale. That's what she called it. Well, I don't know how this young woman expected me to react that day. I don't know if she expected me to faint right there or if she expected me to blow up in anger. What I said to her was, you know, that is really one of the oldest arguments uh, against religion in history. For generations and generations, there has been the suspicion that there is really nothing objectively real beyond what we human beings think and do. I said, I have wondered that many times in my spiritual journey myself. So I asked her, you know, just because I was interested, um, where did you begin to encounter this idea? And it turned out it was everywhere. She had taken uh, an introduction to psych uh, in her first year at college, and they had read excerpts from Sigmund Freud's book on religion. It's called The Future of an Illusion. And you may remember that Freud, for at least most of his career, thought that religion is simply what people would to God were true, but is not. The next year, she had taken a poli-sci class. And you may remember that Karl Marx said that religion is just the opiate of the people. It's what people in power use to keep people who don't have power subservient. In one of her English classes, she had read a, a play by Eugene O'Neill in which one of the main characters says, religion is just a chloroform mask in which the weak and the fearful stick their faces. So it really turned out that she had been bombarded on almost every side by this idea that God is just a man-made creation. And I said to her, I wish I could say to you um, that this is, there's not a shred of evidence that would support that way of thinking. But the truth is, over the centuries, there have been many people, not just in our culture, but in the church, who have clearly come up with images of God that were based on their own needs rather than by any direct encounter with God. I think it's a temptation that all of us have. But then I said to her, from where I stand, that is not the whole story. 
I said, before you make up your mind, I wish over the holidays that you would do three things. I said, you're you know, very bright, obviously, take this very seriously. I said, first of all, over the next couple of weeks, would you just read the Gospel of Mark? It's only 16 chapters long. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. It's no longer than a profile in the New Yorker. Just read it and focus your attention on Jesus with this question in mind. Was his religion something that he made up to get him out of trouble? Or would it be more accurate to say that Jesus was actually in touch with something beyond himself and that it was his faith, his religion, that got him into trouble? I said, look especially at the very last night of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, where you remember, he says, um, God, take this cup of suffering away from me. But not what I will, but what you will. I said, you could call that a lot of things, but that is not wishful thinking. And then I said to her, go ahead and read the book of Acts a little bit, and you'll see this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul. And he really did believe that this whole Christian way of thinking was a, 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 just a, a messed up idea. And he was on his way to destroy what he considered to be a heresy in Damascus when he had this incredible experience that literally turned his world upside down. I said, when you look at what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, would you call that wishful thinking? Was that what he wanted or was that actually the last thing he wanted? because it meant that he would have to eat crow. It meant that he was 180 degrees wrong and his enemies were right and that he was gonna have to put himself at the mercy of those who he was on his way to destroy. And then finally I said to her, you know, I would be curious if you were gonna create a religion, I'll just, I'll just speak for myself, if I was gonna create a religion on my own, it would never say anything about loving my enemies, or forgiving 70 times 7. There would be not a word about denying myself, or certainly picking up a cross. So I said to her, it's true, there has been you know, vast um, idols that have been created, not only in the culture, but in the church. There's no doubt about that. But that is not the whole story. In fact, there is much greater evidence of people encountering this God who made us rather than the other way around. And that is the God that Isaiah points those Hebrews living in the darkness of exile to in their time of need. There is a vast difference between the gods that we make and the God who made us. A minister tells the story of serving in a small church in a, a little, very affluent community and um, going to call one night on one of the wealthiest people, one of the wealthiest men in that town, was sort of a nominal member of his church. And um, the minister went to call because this man's son was critically ill. And when he arrived, uh, a doctor was already on the scene. Um, and the minister remembers that doctor um, 
the, the, the wealthy man begging that doctor to heal his, his son. He said, I'll give you everything that I have, whatever it takes, if you will just save my boy's life. And it was actually the doctor, rather than the minister, who said to him very softly, Sir, money doesn't have the power to accomplish what you want. It was Paul Tillich who used to say, there is never a more significant moment in anyone's life than with the gods that we have made, we come face to face with the God who made us. So one of the treasures that came to those Hebrews living in the darkness of exile was that they got to see firsthand what an idol can and cannot do for you. And this morning I want to suggest to you that that distinction is also there for us. We are as tempted in our time to think that we can take life into our own hands, that I can do it my way, as Sinatra sang, it always blows my mind how many people want that sung at their funeral when the really saving secret is learning to trust this one who literally gives us life. It is pure and total gift. The late Carl R. Marnie used to say, when I die, I am going to get to the place where I have to say, if there's anything else, it's up to God. Death marks the limits of our power. And he said he thought that the purpose of our life in history was to give us enough experiences of this God who gives and sustains life that when we do finally lie down helpless in the hands of God, we will not need to be afraid because we will have already learned he will bear us and he will carry us. I have shared before with you that my understanding of the Christian faith is that it is more like a swing than it is a trapeze. The point being that with a trapeze, you are always holding on for dear life with your own strength. However, with a swing, it's dear life that is holding on to you, supporting you so that you can let your whole weight down. It is not finally us holding on to life. It is by the grace of God, dear life, that is holding on to you. Even in all of our foolishness, life is more like a swing than a trapeze because God, not the ones that we create, but rather the one who created us, that God, I promise you, will carry you and will see you through. Even the money that you have in your pocket at this very moment, surely one of the most graven of all of our images, even that reminds you, in God we trust. Amen.